taking as a theme, of course, through the year, uh, these wonderful verses from Second Peter chapter 1. And we have uh, put up our fourth wall around our house. Uh, we did prefab this time, we did it beforehand. And thanks to those who did it. Peter says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And we've concentrated on the latter verses from 5 to 7, but here leading up to those is that any goodness that we might have, any goodness that we might display, any goodness that God wants to make in our life obviously comes originally from his glory and goodness. Through these he has given us the very great and precious promises that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness mutual affection, to mutual affection love. Now just by way of introduction, uh, we have looked, uh, for those who have not been here before, uh, we have looked for four weeks at what it means to have faith and now this is the fourth week of what it means to have goodness. And when we take a list like this, the four that Peter is telling us are the attributes that we should be, uh, as God's people, seeking to cultivate in our lives, we need to remember that we need to look at them as those who are accruing simple interest uh, not as simple interest, but as compound interest. With simple interest, you just add a bit and then you add a bit more. Compound interest is working for you all the time. And so, of course, uh, we're not meant to just spend all our time trying to work out our faith and then when we think we've got that sorted out, move on to goodness. Uh, it would take us another couple of months then to worry about whether or not we're going to exercise self-control and we might never get to love and of course, God is at work in our lives doing all of these things at the same time. But it's good for us to, to know what God's plan and purpose is, that he might make us what he wants us to be uh, day by day and moment by moment in our walk with him. And we find that there are four words predominantly that are used in the Bible that are translated in our versions of the Bible as goodness, two of them in the Old Testament, which God willing we'll look at in a moment, and two in the New Testament. The one particularly in these verses um, is, is the word uh, arate, uh, which means virtue, and is translated in some translations as virtue, but here translated as goodness. The ultimate uh, goodness uh, the ultimate uh, moral excellence that we've thought of in past weeks. So today we, we move on to, uh, to think of goodness. Hopefully. Goodness. <laughs> Over the last three weeks, uh, Cam uh, spoke the first two weeks of goodness, uh, meaning moral excellence, and concentrated on how that affects our behaviour. 
and our character as it should be expressed in both our behaviour and our character. Last week, Chris spoke to us again uh, on goodness. He went back to look at history, uh, at people who weren't particularly good, moving on to the thought that goodness is related to resurrection and a resurrection life. It's interesting that he used the story of Antiochus Epiphanes from the apocryphal, one of the apocryphal books uh, of Israel's history between the Testaments, between the Old Testament and the New. Antiochus Epiphanes uh, at one stage sacked the temple of God and he uh, offered swine's blood as part of the sacrifice and was the original fulfilment of Daniel's prophecy of the abomination of desolation. And as in most prophecies in the Old Testament, they had a fulfilment that was close by in history and looking forward further still. And the Lord Jesus also spoke of the day that will come when the abomination of desolation will take place again in the temple, the temple that's yet to be built in Israel but will be built and will be desecrated in a similar way by the Antichrist according to the word of God just prior to the return of the Lord Jesus. And so this word goodness is certainly tied to resurrection. For on that day when the Lord Jesus returns, when the whole earth is covered with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father, goodness will reign across God's creation. Today we think of the goodness of God Almighty, our Father, and then as it is revealed and demonstrated in the Lord Jesus and then made real and active in his children. The goodness of Almighty God, our Father. To see something of this, we turn back to the book of Exodus and uh, chapters 33 and 34 in one of the most amazing encounters uh, recorded for us in the scriptures. The children of Israel had just desecrated what God had given them. Moses had been in the mount receiving the Ten Commandments. The children of Israel had made themselves a golden calf with all kinds of debauchery they had worshipped it. God had said to Moses he would wipe them out. He would start again with Moses. Moses said, you can't do that. Remember your promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Remember your word to them. And then he pled with God that he would lead them forward. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said I know you by name. You have found favour with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favour with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other peoples on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you've asked because I am pleased with you 
and I know you by name. Then Moses said, show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put, my, I will put you in the cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. And the Lord said to Moses, Cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. So be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. No man shall come up with you, let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain. So he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him. He took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. So in response to Moses, please show me your glory, which means wait in a good sense. In other words, the solidness of who you are. It means splendor. It means copiousness. Glorious glory, honor. Moses said, I want to see that. And God said, well, you can't see that because you'd die if you did. But I will cause all my goodness to pass before you. And so he came up the next day and God caused his goodness to pass before him by revealing to Moses who he was and what he was and what he stood for. And so, as he came before Moses, he said, I am Yahweh, Sovereign Lord. I, in my sovereignty, I am what I am. I choose to be what I am. I am eternal. I have always been what I have chosen to be. I will always be what I choose to be. And then he reiterates again, Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, sovereign Lord, who is God, in the plural. Now, having pronounced that, 
he then goes on to say to Moses, being able to choose whatever I choose because I am sovereign, I have always been sovereign and I will always be sovereign, I choose to be a despot? No. I choose to be someone that's going to make life miserable for everybody? No. I choose to be a tyrant? No. I choose to be merciful and gracious and patient and abounding in goodness and truth. And here is the second word that is recorded as goodness here in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word chesed which means kindness, loving kindness, mercy, pity, reproach as in being able to be touched by badness and suffering and sin. One who is forgiving, one who is faithful, one who shows favour, one who is full of goodness and loyalty, one who is completely true to his sovereign promises and contracts, Once when we were on holidays in New Zealand, we were going from our motel to a, an evening of cultural uh, experience and then the bus that we went with was an Israeli family. Mother and father, a couple of children, 18-year-old girl, we found out, a younger boy. And the girl seemed quite agitated. Most of the evening we discovered in the course of the evening that this was a holiday of having a family because when she went back, she had to go and do her two years in the army. So I imagine she was concerned about that. But we got talking, and I at one stage said to him, well, I know a couple of Hebrew words, because Old Testament Hebrew, of course, is the language they speak in Israel now. And I said, but one word I know is the word chesed. And I was quite surprised by his reply by its succinctness, its shortness, its brevity, and yet somehow it said so much. He just said to me, that is a wonderful, wonderful word, chesed. Because he knew what it meant. He meant of God's goodness, God's faithfulness. And he said, I'm abounding in chesed, and I'm abounding in truth. One who is stable, one who is, has certainty, one who doesn't change one who keeps his covenants, truth. And you find those two words, chesed and truth, or goodness and truth, right throughout the whole of the Old Testament, hundreds of times or dozens and hundreds of times, translated in different words, could be translated as mercy, could be translated as kindness or loving kindness, but they are often put together by the prophets as they called the nation of Israel back, remember God's chesed, remember his faithfulness, remember his truth. That was David's plea when he had sinned and there in Psalm 51 he said, have mercy upon me because I deserve it. No, have mercy upon me because of your chesed, your faithfulness, your forgiveness, your grace, your mercy.
we should never underestimate the goodness of our God. We should never take for granted the goodness of our God. We should never question the goodness of our God. In the midst of the most horrendous difficulties of life, our God never changes. He may take us through pathways that we wouldn't choose for ourselves, but the pathway he chooses for us is a pathway of blessing, but only of blessing when we surrender to his goodness. Because in his goodness, we find his strength, we find his enabling grace, and we discover that he is morally excellent, and we discover that all of the promises that he made and makes to us are wonderfully, wonderfully real. And you may be going through some difficult times at the moment. Don't look at yourself, don't look at your circumstances, but look away to God and say to him, Lord, teach me in this of your goodness. Teach me in this of your ways. As Moses said, I want to know your ways. I want to understand your heart. Because goodness is at the heart of God. And when we trust him, we discover that all the promises that he makes of his goodness are real. He does give strength for our weakness. He does give wisdom for our foolishness. He does give enabling when we have no more resources left. One of those young men, or I'll go back, I received recently a book with the journals of uh, Jim Elliot. He was a godly man, a, go a very young, and as a young man studying, and I keep thinking to myself, he was only 21 and 22 when he wrote this book, and eight years later he died there in Ecuador. And when I received this book from a friend, I thought, well, I'm not much of a journal person, really. I don't sort of go around writing down all my inner thoughts. But I started to read it, and I've discovered that so much of what he learned was just what I needed on that particular day. I've still got a long way to go because I haven't got very far into it. But he discovered that the way to strength was to own his weakness. The way to blessing and the way to triumphing was to be less of himself. And that's not new. What did John the Baptist say? He must increase, I must decrease. When we begin to discover more and more of the goodness of God, then our hearts rejoice as he encourages us. And then that goodness, God's goodness, is revealed and demonstrated in our Lord Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we've all received grace 
in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one ever has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father has made him known. These are remarkable verses. I've actually highlighted, you'll notice they're full of grace and truth and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I've highlighted those for a reason. Chesed and truth, goodness and truth, grace and truth. When the New Testament was translated from the Greek, the original Greek, into Hebrew, the Hebrew scholars that translated that scripture translated these verses as chesed and truth in the Hebrew. A continuation of what we said before had gone all through the Old Testament and in the eyes of those Hebrew scholars uh, was the right word to use in the Hebrew Bible. Chesed and truth, goodness and truth came by Jesus Christ. And in the Lord Jesus we have the embodiment of goodness in human form. We need to be very careful in our theology of remembering that the Lord Jesus was both human and divine, but he laid aside his divine powers in order that he become truly human. Every miracle that he performed, every word that he spoke, was as a human being in utter and complete dependence on his Father. If he could call down his godly powers and use them, he wouldn't have been a man like us. He wouldn't have been tested in all points like as, as us. But every point of his life, he was tested, he was tempted. He got thirsty, he became hungry. He knew what it was to weep over the death of a friend. He knew what it was to be grieved by the sin of the people around him. And he lived a life as a human being under the power of the Holy Spirit in complete dependence on the Father. Even at his trial... He said to Pilate, and really put the wind up, poor old Pilate, when Pilate said, don't you know that I have the power to put you to death? And his answer was, you have no power over me except my Father in heaven gives it to you. So I could ask him, if you like, for several legions of angels to come and rescue me. He didn't say he could get them himself, but he could ask the Father for them. And we need to remember that in our own lives, that the life that he lived, he calls us to live in utter dependence upon the Father to fulfill the Father's plans and purposes through human beings, weak human beings who depend upon the Spirit of God in their life. And so all his life was an expression of goodness. Right from the start, the words that are used by Mary and the shepherds uh, we've heard good things, we've heard good tidings. He referred to himself as the good shepherd. On one occasion a young man came to him and called him good master. He said, why do you call me good? There is none good but God. Again, looking to his father. Any goodness you might see in me is what my father has done. I'm only a human being like you. Why call me good? There is none good but God. There's a wonderful verse in the book of Acts in chapter 10 
where in summary of the life of the Lord Jesus, one of the disciples is speaking, and amongst other things, it simply said, he went about doing good. And he wasn't counting how many people he was good to. He didn't even let his left hand know what his right hand was doing. He lived out the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, when you do your good deeds, just get on and do them. Not counting them, not letting your right hand know what your left hand is doing and so on. Depends whether your left hand or right hand, I guess. He said, when you pray, don't make a big fuss about the, thing, about the fact that you're praying. But enter into your closet and your Father in heaven will hear you in secret and he will reward you openly. When you're fasting, don't make yourself look as though you're on death's door because you haven't had anything to eat for a day or two. But no, he says, wash your face. Have a happy smile on your face. Your heavenly Father will see in secret and will reward you openly. He lived that good life. And no doubt the contacts that he made and the things that he did were planned by his Father in those long hours of whole nights of prayer. But he went about doing good. C.H. Spurgeon sums his life up this way. He was the exact trans transcript of perfect virtue. The exact transcript of perfect virtue. The Lord Jesus was not crucified for being good. He was crucified because of the things he said. The religious hypocrites that he called out. And for the fact that he said, I and my Father are one, I have come from the Father. The book of Hebrews tells us that he lived a good life, a life that was acceptable to God, that could become a perfect sacrifice, a pure, a holy sacrifice. And that wonderful prophetic psalm in Isaiah 53 says, He shall see, that is God the Father, shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. His life was acceptable to the Father. He showed us how to live. The man who, who uh, was starred in that movie um, about the Olympics some years ago, Chariots of Fire, uh, that wonderful godly man who died in a concentration camp in uh, Japan during the war, Eric Little, who won those Olympic medals. He said, we need to read constantly and live out the Sermon on the Mount. Because there the Lord Jesus expresses how to live day by day in every circumstance almost of life as we look at the goodness of the Lord Jesus. The goodness of God was expressed in Christ. He died in our place. He became our saviour. He's now at the right hand of God the Father offering to the Father the sacrifice of his life as our high priest. He's given us his Holy Spirit to dwell within us, to make all that he is real, in order that we might live a life to which he's called us as well. He received his life as a human being from the Father 
a good life. He expressed the goodness and the virtue of God. He calls us to do the same. And that goodness is now made real and active in his children. In Romans chapter 2 we read, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. For we know that the judgment of God is according to truth, according to those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and suffering, long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? And here we're told that that goodness that was in Christ is now made available to us as human beings. Paul had been speaking in Romans chapter 1 of the fact that he was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ it was the power of God unto salvation to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. And then he lists those downward steps, those awful downward steps of mankind who turned their back on God down through history of the horrendous sin and debauchery and things that have come into our world because people rejected God. And he says, don't judge them. Look at your own heart. And don't you realise that it is the goodness of God that leads you to repentance? Because goodness in us, God's goodness in us, begins with repentance. A person repents when they come under conviction of sin. They have guilt. Very often I found that when people come under conviction they try to tidy their lives up themselves, by themselves. Then find it doesn't work. They seek a change. There is sorrow in their life for the sin that's there. And they seek God. We're not talking about remorse here. We're talking about repentance. There's a big difference. Remorse has an element to us that is often self-seeking. And, usually, and often will uh, excuse self. Whereas true repentance means a change of direction. You turn around and go in the opposite way. I watched a, a documentary on television recently of a man who uh, went from England to America to, um, uh, to set up a business and bit by bit he got involved in the drug scene and became quite a successful and quite a large drug dealer. Eventually he gave it away and because he found it was just too hard with all the people he had to deal with. But the whole time was living a lie. His parents would come to visit and he'd live in his huge big mansion that he had and drive in his big fancy cars and they thought he was doing very, very well in his business uh, of uh, the share market that, uh, that they thought he was doing. And then eventually he gave it away and went back to doing something else. But the police had been checking up on him 
and arrested him and he ended up in a very, very nasty prison in America, eventually was released and got back to England. But the things that he spoke about, the sorrow that he spoke about was the terrible life he'd had in prison. He was sorry for that. And he was sorry that it had upset his parents when they found out that he'd caused them that harm, but not a word about the people whose lives he's ruined. You see, there is a big difference between remorse and repentance. We're in repentance, we go the other way. The Bible tells us that the work of the Holy Spirit, amongst other things, is to bring us to repentance. When he has come, the Lord Jesus said, he will convince the world of sin, of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe on me. The ultimate sin is to refuse God's remedy. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father, the only way to be made righteous, to be made right with God is to trust in the one who is now at the Father's right hand, pleading his own righteousness on our behalf. We have none to give him ourselves, but we trust in his righteousness and the Father accepts the righteousness of Christ. And of judgment because the prince of this world has been judged. He's not talking about judgment to come. He's talking about the fact that the devil has already been judged. The devil is just out on day leave at the moment. There's coming a day when he will be cast into hell with his angels. In the meantime, judgment has been passed. And so when the Holy Spirit works in your life, to convince you that the only way your sin can be forgiven is in Jesus, the only way you can be righteous is because Jesus is at the Father's right hand and also because Satan has been judged already, you're on the wrong side, my friend. If you don't know the Lord Jesus and Satan is still the one who runs your life in conjunction with you as a happy follower, his time is limited. He has been judged and judgment has been passed. And we're on the losing side. And it depends how real is our repentance as to how real is our walk with God and our understanding of his goodness in our life. The remorse of legalism says, I broke God's rules, but I'll try harder to do better in the future. The remorse of a carnal Christian says, I broke God's rules, but it doesn't really matter much because I've come into liberty in Christ and it doesn't matter much how I live. Jesus died for me, I just have to ask him and confess my sin to him and get on with it and whether I'm much better or not, well, that doesn't really matter much whether I walk in goodness. But true repentance doesn't say, I broke God's rules. True repentance says, I broke God's heart. And the response that comes is the same as that of David in Psalm 51. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. A heart that cries out and says to God, I don't want to grieve you anymore. 
True repentance brings true victory. We're not saying as a Christian I broke God's rules but I'll try harder not to do it in the future. But when I understand that I broke God's heart so much that he had to send his only son to die in my place, then the response is I don't want to grieve him anymore. Somehow that sin that beset us, that sin that bound us, that sin that holds us back from being and entering into the goodness of God becomes something that we overcome, something in which we live in victory because we don't want to grieve him anymore. Because you see, grieving is a love word. You can't grieve someone who doesn't love you. The Bible says that it's possible to resist the Holy Spirit, not to listen to his voice. The Bible says it's possible to quench the Holy Spirit, to try and somehow snuff him out of our life. It also says that we're not to grieve the Holy Spirit. And God is grieved over our sin and we will grieve over our sin when we understand that such grief can only be generated because God loves us. And any parent knows that when the rules are broken, we maybe accept that a bit. But the pain that comes into our hearts is the fact of the spirit that is behind those broken rules. I broke God's heart. I would suggest to you today that the level of goodness in us will always be in proportion to the level of true repentance and a true understanding of who we are before God and what God has done for us. And then having repented, having entered into this new life in Christ, this has expressed in us the goodness of God, his virtue, his goodness, his moral excellence. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit brings his fruit to bear in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, surprise, surprise, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. God's desire for you and me today is that we should walk a good life. Not in any sense of being a a goody-goody two-shoes, but simply a reflection of the goodness of God as expressed in the Lord Jesus and now made possible in our life that wasn't possible before, at a level that we've never known before. A life that is fruitful, a life that adds to its faith the goodness. A life, as our video clip told us before, of being in Christ, a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And one of those new things is the ability to walk in God's goodness. How do we do that? We ask his forgiveness. We repent of our sin. We go on trusting him to do within us what we cannot do for ourselves. We desire to go on with him. We desire closer fellowship with our Father in order that we might understand all that he desires for us. He who has been forgiven much loves much. David said in one of the Psalms, you will show me the path of life for in your presence 
is fullness of joy. Uh, do you want your Christian life, which should be your whole life, to be filled with joy? Then seek from God to know his goodness, to know who he is, what he is, and what he makes available to us. So whatever the circumstances, we can say he not only knows my path, but he plans my path. And that will be a good path because in his path there is fullness of joy. Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank you for your love to us. We thank you that you sent the Lord Jesus to die in our place in order that we might know you as your children. But in order that in this life, before you take us to glory, we might live lives that honour you, filled with your goodness, filled with all the good things that you have within your character, mercy and love and long-sufferingness and faithfulness and truth, that these things might become our daily portion as we trust you. For we ask it in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.